Alrighty, everyone. Welcome back. It has been two weeks since we last reconvened for Monday Madness, and I'd like to apologize since I haven't missed a Monday Madness since March 16th. But nonetheless, it is today, November 23rd. Now, I'd gotten sick with strep throat, and I could barely squeak out any words, so I took that week off, but now I am back and better than ever. I'm really just glad it's not COVID, and even more glad to be back doing this, as this will be the Thanksgiving episode, if you will. I'll try to give you some spicy news that you can bring up at the dinner table. Jokes aside, I know you didn't come here to listen to me talk about my sickness or Thanksgiving plans, so I think it is high time we jump into statistics, starting with our favorite, WTI pricing. Now, at the time of recording, WTI was at $43 flat, which is great. If we can edge a little higher and break that $45 barrier, it opens up a lot of opportunities for many operators. In some basins, like the Permian or Powder River, it's damn near economic to do a hydraulic fracturing job on a well at $45, further bolstering production for those regions. While many basins have been experiencing increased production, it is likely to peter out in just a few months' time if no one is able to do any frack jobs or get any of those lined up. I mean, the price is nice, and I do hope we see it climb higher. Now, rig count, on the other hand, did not perform as well as we would have hoped this week. During my hiatus last week, we saw 12 new rigs. Unfortunately, this week, we saw a decrease of two rigs. On the brighter side, this is the first decrease we have seen since September 11th, so not too shabby as a whole. Either way, still down 493 rigs on the year. And then inventories. Well, they've been doing okay since that 8 million barrel draw we saw at the start of November. The API's report for the week ending November the 18th shows a three-quarter of a million barrel build, which was still lower than what they had anticipated. The EIA's report released a few days prior for the week ending on November 13th shows a similar build of around 800,000 barrels. Not good, but not exactly terrible either. Looking at the graph that the EIA has drawn for recent inventories for the past year or so, we're falling to levels observed around June, so let's see if that inventory can hopefully get any lower. Now, most of our audience is based out of the Denver metro area, minus this really strange spike from Columbus, Ohio. Please leave a review and let us know who you are. But because many of us are from this area, I'd like to open up today's segment talking about the COGCC, and it might even take up a better part of today's episode. So, for those of you who don't know, the Colorado Oil and Gas Conservation Commission, or COGCC, is the state's oil and gas regulatory agency dedicated to the development and production of natural resources, or so they say. In times long past, the agency worked with operators to approve permitting, find infractions, and generally do the things you would expect a regulatory agency to do. In 2020, however, it was completely overhauled. Environmentalist groups celebrated the fact that an agency who was once an advocate who fostered oil and gas production had turned into a body that adds a greater amount of stricter regulations, even though they are already some of the most stringent in the nation. For example, the end of September heralded in an announcement from the COGCC that the setback requirement of 500 feet would be up to 2,000 feet. Governor Polis defended the decision by saying, quote, we knew fundamental changes were necessary to enhance the protection of health, safety, and the environment, provide local governments a seat at the table, and cultivate more regulatory certainty for the industry. End quote. Now, a brief history of setbacks in Colorado. As I was a student at Mines during 2016 to 2020 time period, I've had the pleasure of seeing this play out real time. I mean, fights for setbacks have been going on way before I arrived at the state, but the first significant legislation I can remember is Prop 112. 
It essentially upped the set back to 2,500 feet from occupied buildings and vulnerable areas. Vulnerable areas could be described as parks, amphitheaters, sports field, public lands, creeks, really whatever you wanted it to be. This would have made millions of acres of land inaccessible and tanked the state's revenues. The people voted, and the people said no. The majority did, at least. And this was a huge point of contention for a lot of people, as it wasn't even really a new bill. This is a fight that's been going on for a while and continued to go on. I mean, Senate Bill 181 would try to do the same thing just a year later in 2019. Municipalities all over the state, Boulder especially, would push hard for these setbacks, always proposing legislation, but the people seemed to repeatedly vote no on the issue as a majority. Sure, a significant number of people would love to see these setbacks, but again, the majority would vote against them. Today, the COGCC has not asked the people, but rather told the industry, that a 2,000-foot setback will be going into effect. Many operators fear that this is the beginning of the end of oil and gas in Colorado. Rich Frommer, president and CEO of Great Western Petroleum, said, quote, We used to get permits in 30 to 45 days. Now it takes one and a half years. The form used to be 20 pages. Now it's approaching 2,000 pages to get that drilling permit. To make matters worse, operators are already struggling, and the new regulations are expected to cost the industry between $13 million to $80 million as a whole if they do in fact comply. A lot of operators don't have that type of cash flowing about, especially right now, making it difficult to work in Colorado. It even extends past operators. In 2017, a University of Denver study found that Colorado's oil and gas industry had a $31 billion economic impact, including the indirect employment and support of businesses like, say, gas stations, and the $990 million it generated in public revenue. By comparison, tourism generates about $1.2 billion for Colorado, and marijuana generates about $1.6 in a non-pandemic time frame. Oil and gas production is a significant portion of Colorado's revenue, and losing that entirely would easily affect everyday citizens like you and me. Great Western CEO Fronmer even says the COGCC has, quote, all but ended the era of the small operator in Colorado. It's no longer cost-effective for them. You have to be bigger or have that organization behind you to navigate this new regulatory environment. Even land use attorneys advise you not to bother with an appeal. Now, why am I bringing this all up? It seems like a big downer. I mean, we've heard it all before, but we'll keep moving forward in the COGCC is there to not only regulate, but work alongside the industry. Right? Well, unfortunately, it would seem that some within the organization harbor resentment for the operators. We've now arrived at part two of this news story, as we have some pretty, pretty wild developments. The COGCC is working on a new e-filing system to improve the navigation and storage of their vast amount of records. As it hasn't launched yet, a lot of tests are being performed with dummy records to iron out the kinks before launch. Now, it's Sunday, November 15th, and email is pushed out to hundreds of oil and gas workers across the state. The list in the email highlighted companies that had upcoming hearings. No biggie, right? Well, closer inspection would reveal that a company showing up for the hearing was Snake Oil Inc., being represented by Blah 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 Law Firm for case number 666. Strange. Reading more, one would find companies like Acme Company, Bad Oil and Gas, Really Rich, and Here We Go Again. These are the hearings for the new regulations, the setbacks. The hearings that are supposed to be heard by an unbiased and fair board of directors who work for the oil and gas industry. A follow-up message said, Those emails were sent in error, but the damage is already done. This email was received by people who had to lay off good men and women in the state. 
This email was received by people who believed that the COGCC wasn't working against them. This email was received by people who may have to close their doors on their business. Quite frankly, it's downright disrespectful and highlights the true issue at hand. The industry has been vilified to the point that the regulators who should be working for the industry could care less about oil and gas production. I've got nothing else to say about this story. I'll let you draw your own conclusions, and I really just want to present facts, not my opinion, and I believe I am beginning to toe the line, so let's at least get one other story in for this episode of Monday Badness. Saudi Arabia is easily known for their hydrocarbons, but now wants to be equally as famous for their hydrogen. Energy Minister Prince Abdulaziz bin Salman announced that Saudi Arabia has ambitious plans and, quote, will not be challenged in its record of being the biggest exporter of hydrogen on Earth, end quote. The Saudis plan to use their large natural gas reserves to produce blue hydrogen. Hold up, blue hydrogen? I imagine some of you may not have heard that before, and I gotta admit, I had to educate myself while preparing the script for this episode. So there are three primary generation forms of hydrogen right now. The one that accounts for 95% of the world's hydrogen, well, gray hydrogen or brown hydrogen, makes use of natural gas and other fossil fuels to generate hydrogen. Now, green hydrogen is the generation of hydrogen powered by renewable sources like wind and solar to split water through electrolysis. This is more sustainable than blue hydrogen, but also more expensive. Blue hydrogen is generated through steam methane reformation, or SMR. In this process, you take natural gas, or LNG, and run it through a steam scrubbing process to remove any carbon that's undesired, which you would then store into the ground or make use of wherever, leaving a substantial amount of hydrogen that is ready to enter an electric grid. Bet you didn't expect to learn something like this so early in the week, huh? If you'd like to learn more about the use of hydrogen, Kevin wrote a fantastic periodical on the energy transition that touches on it a little bit, and you can read that at rarepetro.com. Anyway, September marked the first month that Saudi Arabia shipped the first cargo of blue hydrogen, which was converted into ammonia. The kingdom also plans to sink $5 billion into a facility to generate green hydrogen starting in 2025. Even so, this technology is far from being infallible, as it is expensive and makes the hydrogen difficult to transport. Green hydrogen costs between $4 and $6 per kilogram, compared to the dirtier process that produces gray or brown hydrogen for just under $2 per kilogram. But gray, brown, green, blue, whatever it is you favor, I'm afraid that is the end of this episode of Monday Madness. So thank you for joining me again today. You can find a whole lot more content on rarepetro.com from other podcasts, the periodicals that are written, to just general services that we provide for operators like maybe you listening. Or maybe you're a student and you want to learn. Either way, we have something for everybody. So learn and grow with us. It's going to be a modern mobile oil field, and we're going to take advantage of it here at Rare Petro. So thank you for joining us, and until I see you next time, take care, everybody.